those who have been doing so much work to make it what it has been. Um, everyone from the uh, mission service group, the office team here that's been putting in a lot of hours getting all of the materials ready. And in fact, we did even more. We got more of these booklets made. We've got two. John, see if there's two people who need some of these. Those are the last two. They were from up here. So um, those books have notes in them for the service that you can follow along. Write down how you can partner with the missionaries that you're hearing from, as well as take things that we're learning and see how we can put it to good use. So thank you, Frank, for sharing some of the ways that we can partner with you. And I want to thank the pastors especially. One of the things that we've been focusing on in this conference with the theme of back to the basics of missions is that the local church is the absolute central core to the missions work. It's the agency by which God has chosen to extend the gospel throughout the world. And so thank you to our pastoral team for leading this church for allowing me the opportunity to be able to minister this week, to minister to you in the way that you minister to my family as we have come off of the field of Zambia, Africa, in order to be on a global mission field as we lead IBM Global. And in fact, for those of you, so, some of you may know me, some of you may not. Um, I'm not one of the pastors here at the church, but I do have the privilege of serving as the president of IBM Global, a mission agency that was started from right here at Merrimack Valley Baptist Church. But since I'm up here preaching today, if you're visiting with us, I just, I'm not going to have you do anything. I'm going to ask the pastors, stand real quick so they know who to find after the service um, so that they can get to know Merrimack Valley Baptist Church. This is Pastor Greg, our lead pastor here, and then uh, pastors Dan, Joe, Dave, and then uh, you've heard Pastor Aaron leading worship and Pastor Jeff with the children's ministry. Thank you all for what you do here in our own community and leading us. And this is so important because the church, the church does not exist for herself. This is a core truth that we must grasp. Sadly, even the churches that have gotten off to a great start often end up getting bogged down in their own machinery of policies, procedures, traditions, and tasks. They simply exist for their own existence, but that's not what God intended. Churches that fall into that rut have lost sight of their mission. And that's why Missions Conference at Merrimack Valley Baptist Church is a highlight of the yearly calendar. We want to be reminded of why the Lord has left us on this planet until he comes. You see, the church is an embassy, and as a missionary, you get very well acquainted with embassies. This is the embassy that we would go to. This is where we would go for getting our passports renewed as American citizens in Zambia. But, you know, here's the funny thing about an embassy. An embassy provides services for the citizens of the country that, that they have people living there as foreigners in. So the American embassy provides services for Americans. And we're so thankful that they do. As Americans living overseas, it does give you some added comfort to know that your country is represented there and, and waiting to assist you should the need arise. But we actually spent more time at the embassy because of Chola and his adoption. You see, an embassy in another country is also providing services not only for its own citizens, but for the citizens of the host country where the embassy is located. If somebody wants to come and visit America, they have to get a visa from the embassy. If they want to become a United States citizen, they make their application there, and you can do it, but there's only one way. You have to follow the instructions. Well, the church is an embassy. The church is an embassy of the King of Heaven. We represent Him and His kingdom right here on this earth. This is the host country. We are not citizens of this world. We're pilgrims passing through. We are ambassadors sent with a message 
Here's how you can become a citizen of God's kingdom. There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now that's a beautiful picture of what the church should be. The church is an embassy, and that would make each one of us who already know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, it would make us the ambassadors. Those who have been sent out to represent the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to speak on His behalf, to make His values known, to make His laws known, to make His gift of salvation known. Because He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so we have the joy of being sent out as an ambassador. Amongst us, amongst the church serving as the embassy in its own community, there are also some who are sent further across additional cultural boundaries. These would be called missionaries. A missionary is a person who is intentionally sent across cultural boundaries to preach the gospel, win people to Christ, and disciple them into reproducing local congregations of believers. And how is that going to happen? By training biblically qualified leaders. That's what a missionary does. So, Everyone in this room should be a Christian who is living on mission. Getting up every day saying, Lord, how can I serve you? Not everyone in this room is a missionary sent across cultural boundaries. We're going to look at that today as we examine how the early church sent out Paul and Barnabas. But the only way that that could happen is if every Christian was living on mission and Actually, it was people who were living on mission who took the gospel first to Antioch, even though they were not missionaries who had been sent out by their church. In other words, the spread of the gospel in some ways needs to happen very organically by us just being on mission wherever we might happen to be geographically. But in other ways, it needs to be done very intentionally by recognizing those that God has called and equipped so that we would affirm them in sending them out as ambassadors to the rest of the world. Let me give you a picture of what missions looks like. You see, in the bullseye, at this epicenter, we see God. God is the originator of the mission. It's his mission. And this is the flow of the mission of God from his own heart out to the world. God originates the mission. Jesus Christ enacted the mission when he was first set here to this earth, then the Holy Spirit gives power to the mission as we are the ambassadors that continue to carry out the gospel. The church carries out the mission, and the world hears the message of the mission. That's it. That's missions. Missions is the means by which we engage in worship of God that results in his exaltation around the globe. Missions is the plan of committed believers to accomplish the mission of God. Robert H. Glover says it this way, Christian missions are no human undertaking, but a supernatural and divine enterprise for which God has provided supernatural power and leadership. Robertson McQuilkin states it another way. This, then, is the biblical basis for missions. World evangelization is the expressed will of God. Spiritual redemption is the demonstrated activity of God. Evangelism and redemptive activity are expressed as the will of God and the demonstrated activity of God because it is the nature of God so to will and so to act. Love is the revolted nature of God. The salvation of lost men is the human event which brings greatest glory to God. Isn't it sad that God who is love often has his love revolted against? Love is the revolted nature of God. We, we spurn it, we turn it away, and yet the salvation of lost men is the is that human event which brings the greatest glory to God. When people finally surrender to the will and the love of God and say, 
I don't understand why you'd love me the way you do, but you demonstrated it on the cross. And I need it, I want it, and I accept it. You know, we could express what missions is in quote after quote after quote, but the bottom line is this. The intentionality of missions must be on the forefront of our minds. It's the intentionality of missions that I want to address today. In other words, what do we plan to achieve as churches? If missions is the plan of committed believers to carry out the mission of God, what is it that we plan to achieve? What is it that we are envisioning 10 years from now, 20 years from now, in terms of where we would love to see the Lord doing things to reach every nation, tribe, and tongue? You see, if we don't know what we're aiming at, then we are bound to be ineffective in the Great Commission. Because if you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. If we aim for nothing, we're going to hit nothing. But there is a target that the Lord has given us, and we see it in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. For us to, to hit the target, we must be honestly identifying the obstacles that stand in the way of the intentional actions that must overcome those obstacles. What is it that we see that we should be aiming for? In Revelation 7, 9, and 10, it says that there will be gathered around the throne room of God people from every kindred and tribe and nation and tongue who have been redeemed, bought back from their sin by the very blood of the Lamb. It's His blood that purchased the redemption. That's what we're aiming for. It is a certain reality because God has already said that it will happen. Revelation 7 gives us a glimpse into eternity future. But in between when Christ rose and ascended into heaven and what we see in Revelation 7, 9 and 10, we have a task to carry out, a task that's been entrusted to us so that we can be a part of God working in the world until... Every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue is represented by those who've been redeemed. God desires for us to join him in his work of redeeming sinful man to himself. And so it's important to think together and pray together in order to be intentional and strategic as a team, as a church. What does this team look like? Well, it consists of those who are sending out missionaries and those who are being sent. Today, we will examine the best case study in Scripture regarding missions from beginning to end, the church in Antioch, and its missionary ambassadors, Paul and Barnabas. This is a portrait of missions done well. This is us getting to see precision execution of God's master plan of missions. And if there's one idea that I hope you take away from today's message, it would be this. When you do God's work, God's way, God uses you to accomplish what only He can produce. As we examine what God did in the Church of Antioch and its ambassadors, we will identify principles for us to emulate today. Let's begin in Acts chapter 13. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Acts 13, verse 1. It says, Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. I want us to jump now to the end of chapter 14. Turn over one page, Acts chapter 14, 
verse 23, starting in verse 23, Acts chapter 14. So we ended with Paul and Barnabas being sent away. Here it is at the end of missionary journey number one. It says, And so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. We just read the first page and the last page of missionary journey number one of the Apostle Paul and his team. At the end of Acts 14, it is obvious that Paul and Barnabas had a sense of completion about the work they had just done. Did you catch that in verse 26? They went back to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. What is it they have fulfilled or finished or completed that makes them now come back home and say, hey, everybody, let's celebrate. What you sent us out to do has been achieved. Well, clearly it is not the fact that all the people had been saved because there were very few Christians at this point in world history. So what was the grand and great news that they could celebrate together? Perhaps the best way to answer that question is to first answer another question. What was it about Antioch that made it stand out? What uniqueness was there about this church? What role was it playing at this point in time? Now let me warn you that we're about to do a serious amount of Bible study. So I hope you're ready to gallop, not just... Not just like stroll. We're going to gallop through Scripture passages together today. Because we're wanting to see what actually unfolded here in this point in time. The church in Antioch was a strategic inflection point. The tone of Christianity changed because of what God did in and through this particular local church. It was a point at which the church's mission work pushed the boundaries of the Jewish community and now took on the next challenge of intentionally taking the gospel into Gentile territory. And this takes us to obstacle number one and principle number one, which is how we're going to do our outline today. Each one of the things we're going to look, we're going to look at three things. We're going to see an obstacle that had to be overcome and the principle that we need to apply to our own lives. I'm going to state all of these in both the positive and negative terms because that's the reality of missions. There is an obstacle to overcome, a mission to be accomplished. The positive terms will be stated as the principles and the negative terms will be stated as the obstacles. So obstacle number one Breaking of cultural boundaries. But what's the principle that goes along with it? Missions work must intentionally take the gospel to all people, not just people like the messengers. Now, perhaps we need to define culture since it's such a key idea to this first main point. Culture is the total way of life of a people. It's composed of their learned behaviors and their shared behaviors. The patterns, the values, the norms, and the material objects that make up their way of life. And therefore, obstacle number one is breaking cultural boundaries. This work clearly began in Acts chapter 10, where Peter was out on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner, and God gave him a vision And in response, Peter 
now travels to the home of a man named Cornelius, who was unquestionably a Gentile. He's not Jewish at all. And it is because of what God showed Peter that Peter was convinced that not only could he go and share the gospel, but he must go and share the gospel. But to do so meant he was breaking every cultural tradition and expectation of the Jews. Join me in reading Acts chapter 10. Turn back a couple of pages. Acts chapter 10, look at verse 28. It says, Then he said to them, You know how it is unlawful for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked them, for what reason have you sent for me? This is Peter's way of introducing himself to Cornelius and his household. He lets them know, by being here right now, I am committing a major cultural faux pas. And yet God sent me? And now I want to know why it is that you asked for me to come. And from that point, Peter shares the gospel. Now, he knows that it's meant to go to the ends of the earth because that already has been clearly stated by Jesus in Acts 1.8. But throughout their ministry, they, they really focused primarily on the Jewish people. In fact, the first time that the disciples themselves were sent out, it was to only the house of Israel. Later, in John chapter 4, you see Jesus take the people, his disciples, through Samaria in order to expose them to cross-cultural ministry, and they saw a great spiritual awakening take place there. But very little has happened since then. I mean, they, they were starting to, to carry out Acts 1-8, as you see the spread of the gospel in the early book of Acts, but it wasn't Peter. It was Philip, one of the first deacons, who took it to Samaria. And when they heard about the great awakening that was happening in Samaria, that's when Peter and, Jane, and John end up going to see, is it really happening? Are the Samaritans, who are both, they're half Jewish and half Gentile, are they responding to the gospel? And the answer was yes. But even then, it wasn't like they were specifically targeting getting the gospel to Gentiles. It was, well, that was a nice rare occasion. That was a nice thing. That was special. But we still got a lot of Jewish people to reach. And so they kept focusing on the Jewish community until now. And so what we see, if you go down to verse 44 of Acts chapter 10, you see what God does in this household. Verse 45. Sorry, verse 44 and 45. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. So the Jewish Christians were shocked that now these Gentiles had just gotten saved and are demonstrating the same Holy Spirit that they had received when the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 2. And they're saying, whoa, that was not expected. They were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. This is a great day, but it falls short of what we would say is true mission work that is going to be reaching full maturity because you don't see an actual church spring up here. You don't see a church that could then be a launching pad for outreach to the Gentile community. Instead, in chapter 11, you actually see Peter go and report back to the church in Jerusalem because the Jewish Christians who heard about what happens in the home of Cornelius weren't celebrating. They were upset that Peter had gone into the home of a Gentile, just like he knew they would be, because he had broken the cultural expectations. You know, he's thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I obey the Lord, and now I get punished for it. No good deed goes unpunished. And so he gets called on the carpet for it. They ask him, what were you thinking? What were you doing? And Peter basically takes on a very passive defense at first. Listen, you know, I was just praying on the top of the roof, and God gave me this vision. I mean, what was I supposed to do? I mean, I wasn't intentionally trying to go out against our traditions. 
That's kind of the tone that you hear him speaking in as he shares what happened. He wasn't very bold at this moment in time. He almost takes on the same posture as Aaron when he made the golden calf. You know, the people gave me their gold, and I melted it down, and poof, out popped this calf. That's not how it happened. Aaron molded that thing, but he didn't want to take responsibility for it. Well, here, Peter basically says, I spoke to them, and then suddenly the Holy Spirit fell upon them. So who was I to refuse what clearly God was doing there? Now, that is a true statement, but he could have been far more bold about it. He could have said, well, of course I went. That's the very commission that God gave us when Jesus spoke to us on the top of the mountain. I'm just doing exactly what he said to do. Why aren't you? But he didn't take that posture, did he? Thankfully, we see a positive response in verse 18. If you get to verse 18 of, of chapter 11, it says, When they heard these things, they became silent. And... They glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And so the Jews finally realized what Jesus had said before. The Gentiles were actually members of God's household through Christ. And on an equal basis with the Jews. It was after this that the gospel started being taken amongst the Gentiles. However, in verses 19 and 20, you see that the church was not intentionally reaching to the Gentiles just yet. Read that, Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, because Stephen had been stoned, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. Now that word Hellenist often is referred to as Jewish people who have adopted the Greek culture, but sometimes it's also describing actual Gentiles, and that's the situation that we find here in Acts 11. It's not talking about Jewish people who are accepting of Greek culture. These are going to be actual Gentiles as well. And so it finally gets given to them. But not because of the people who were Jews. It's people from Cyprus and Cyrene. They had received the gospel. Now they're willing to freely share it with others. Could these men of Cyprus and Cyrene be the same men that are later named off as leaders of the church in Antioch in Acts 13.1? Turn there. 13.1. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. This is where we started our message today. Who were they? Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Could it be? That some of these people were the original messengers that took the gospel who had now been fully discipled by Barnabas and Saul and had risen to the level of being elders within their local church? Scripture doesn't tell us, but a little bit of sanctified imagination would tell us pretty likely. And this is what's happening. As now the gospel is being spread. Now we go back to where we started in Acts chapter 13. God has chosen Antioch to fulfill the role of being the launching pad to reach westwards, reaching into largely Gentile territory. Antioch was not just another city being reached. It was a strategically chosen, God-ordained headquarters for in for the church to intentionally reach primarily into Gentile territory. Look at this map. Isn't it amazing? So you've got Jerusalem, they're reaching the, the Jewish people. Now Antioch is directly north of there, and from there they head over to Cyprus, and then head on over up into Italia, and there you see missionary journey number one. All of the churches that they ended up going to, well, let me say it this way. All of the towns and cities they went to where there was no church 
And when they were done, there was a church. Notice, though, that even when they got started in reaching to the other Gentile territories, it was actually a slow transition for them to stop focusing on the Jews and give equal attention to the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas, we saw in verse 3, were sent off. But now jump down in Acts chapter 13, verse 5. When they arrived in Somalis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the, say it with me, Jews. They also had John as their assistant, John Mark. Verse 6, now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. Jump down to verse 16. We see the pattern continue. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And so at first the focus was still on the Jews, but they also included the Gentiles. It really was not until they experienced the hostility from the Jews in these cities that Paul and Barnabas said, enough is enough. We are now focusing on the Gentiles first and the Jews second. And that's what we see. Acts 13, verse 46. Jump down to that verse. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, Jews... Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. This was the turning point. Verse uh, the first five verses of Acts 14, they indicate that that shift had already taken place as well. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude both of the Jews and the Greeks believed, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby. And so as we march through these early chapters of the expansion of the gospel into Gentile territory, we see there was a lot of opposition, and it required them to intentionally cross cultural boundaries. But there's excitement that joins this story as we go along. When we get down to verse 8 to 13, we see a change. The Jews, Jews would not have reacted the way that this group of people does. As we get to Acts chapter 14, verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a cripple with his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up, straight on your feet. And he walked. And he leaped and walked. Now, when the people saw that Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. <laughs> and Barnabas, they called Zeus. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. <laughs> then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. They were getting ready to worship the messengers of the gospel rather than the God who would save people. There was a basic fundamental misunderstanding. Why? Because they had a different way of viewing the world. They had their own cultural norms and expectations. They had all of their various patterns. You see, they had to cross these and clearly communicate the gospel. This is the first time Paul and Barnabas ran into this kind of obstacle. And boy, was it challenging. But they overcame it. <laughs> God opened a door for the Gentiles for the very first time in the history of the church. And that's what really was happening during this time period, which is good news for us because most of us in this room are not Jewish ethnically. 
So, where does the excitement come from in Acts 14? They've evangelized the Gentiles. They've discipled them to maturity. They actually appointed elders for them. And they get into Antioch and report, believe it or not, we have planted actual churches across Asia. What had been inconceivable to all of them just months before had become a reality. And that's where we find ourselves at Acts 14, 27. When they had come together and gathered the church of Antioch together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. That's amazing. If it weren't for that, we would not likely be sitting here today. And the church was genuinely excited because God did through them, the church in Antioch, far beyond what any of them ever dreamed when they sent out Paul and Barnabas. They were all surprised, including Paul and Barnabas. That's what made Antioch so special, so unique. It was the launching pad for taking the gospel to the Gentiles, and that's why there is so much joy as they return. That's why we should be celebrating when our missionaries come back and share with us what God has been doing through their ministry that we have been supporting and praying for and visiting and encouraging them with our emails and text messages. God is on the move. But you see, up until this point, with the apostles, this outreach was not intentional. But with God it was. God was the one orchestrating the persecution to be able to get these people out to these different locations. God was the one who said, you might not be thinking of sending out Barnabas and Saul, but I am. Now send them today. Acts 1.8 makes God's intentionality known. However, the church stayed comfortably amongst their own Jewish culture until God used persecution to kick them out into contact with the Gentile world. And even when they got out there, they still focused on Jews. <laughs> well, thankfully it didn't end there. Missionary journey number one, they, can, they spread. But missionary journey number two, they go even farther. This is the next stage of, of gospel advance. In the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas now go. They wanted to return to strengthen the young Gentile churches. But as they were going along, they also wanted to go into new territories. And, and they would try to go to the left. God said no. They tried to go to the right. God said no. And before long, they reach a body of water to the north, and they ask, what are we supposed to do? We're sent to preach the gospel, but you don't preach the gospel to fish. So where should we go? <laughs> And it's that night that God said to Paul through the vision that he had in his dream to go to Macedonia. It was never Paul nor Silas's intention to take the gospel beyond Asia and enter into Europe, but it was God's intention. It was God's agenda to once again break the boundaries of what was currently being done. Now, if you continue dissecting God's work in the early church, you'll notice that the first church planted in Europe was in the city of Philippi. And it became the next hub for outreach into the rest of Europe. So from Jerusalem, Antioch became the launching pad. From Antioch, Philippi became the launching pad. Oh, Jerusalem and Antioch were still active, but each time they reproduced and passed the baton to the next ring out, carrying out Acts 1.8, in a very practical way. The church in Antioch passes this baton to the Philippian church, and from that we see the churches in Thessalonica planted, the churches in Berea, the churches in Corinth, all being birthed and supported by the church in Philippi. On your own time, read Philippians chapter 4, 15 and 16, where Paul specifically thanks the church of Philippi for being partners with him from the very first day that they heard the gospel until now. And so we've seen obstacle number one, 
crossing cultural boundaries. Obstacle number two, laziness. Laziness in study and laziness in planning. What's the principle that we have to have if we're going to overcome that obstacle? God's intentions will ultimately be accomplished, but wise stewards demonstrate serious commitment by developing strategies based on God's plans and God's commands. We see them in Scripture. Now he expects us to put them into practice. Don't just wait for him to be doing work. He's told us he will do the work, and we should be strategizing, planning, working. As we're moving, think of it this way. It's easier to move, it's easier to steer a moving car than a parked car, right? So get busy moving, and he will continue directing. And he's already told you what you need to know to get started right there in his word. We defined the other day mission as the work of God in reconciling sinful human beings to himself. Missions, you add an S to it, and now you have the plan of committed believers to accomplish the mission of God. Well, missions was never meant to be incidental, to just happen haphazardly. God has an agenda, and that agenda must be taken seriously. He's the master of the parable of the talents. He has given us investments to manage, and he expects us to use our intellect and skill to multiply those investments. The gospel must be breaking boundaries. It must be going further and further afield. And the churches that we are planting in these further regions must see it as their responsibility to take the gospel further and further as well. That's the work of missions. And it, in, it requires intentionality. It requires deliberate planning and strategizing. The disciples needed God to take them by the hand and lead them to do what he had already equipped and commanded them to do. Should he have to do that for us also? No. Should we wait for persecution to come into the United States before we start <laughs> carrying out the gospel by running for our lives and taking the gospel with us? It looks to me like it might be coming. Wouldn't it be better to already be at work? But sadly, here's a, here's a statistic. In 2019, George Barna did a survey asking Christians, especially in the millennial generation, about evangelism. And here were the results. It revealed that most Christians in our day and age think it is wrong to evangelize. Wrong. Not just uncomfortable, not just... Oh, I really don't feel equipped. No, they believed morally it was wrong. How in the world do you get to that standpoint? Well, very easily, actually. You just adopt the, the overarching worldview of the culture around you, and before long, it's wrong to make people feel bad. It's wrong to confront them with truth. And because they believe that, that political correctness is right... It is therefore wrong to carry out the commands of God and share the gospel with people who are destined for hell unless they hear the good news and repent of their sin. It reminds me of a mountain in Kenya where it seems like the water actually flows uphill, but it's, it's not at all. Like the cars in neutral look like they're moving uphill. It's all an optical illusion because the surrounding area causes it to look like what is actually going downhill is going uphill. You know what? In, in America these days, we're calling good what is evil, and we're calling evil what is good. We've turned everything upside down, even to the point where Christians are saying it's wrong to share the gospel. We've got to get our heads on straight. We've got to see the truth from God's word. So let's look at our next obstacle. <laughs> obstacle number three. A lack of biblical balance due to cultural and traditional shackles. Cultural and traditional shackles. Boy, they have a way of penetrating into our churches. What's the positive? What's the principle we should apply? Ministering to different cultures with different worldviews requires the same gospel message, but ministering to different cultures also presents 
different challenges that the local church and missionary teams must adapt to. We have to be adaptable. We have to be flexible. In fact, we often say to be a missionary, you can't just be flexible. You have to be fluid. The one thing you have to have for certain that is unchanging is the gospel message. But we have to exercise wisdom and balance as we use creative methods to explain God's unchanging truths in an ever-changing world. We have to exercise wisdom and balance to apply strategic changes to our plan as we understand our target audience. It's one thing for Frank and Tori to go to South Africa with a plan. We, they need to have a plan, but when they get there, they're going to have to revise that plan because what you find on the ground is not what you anticipated early on. Same thing is true in warfare. Every military has a plan, but as soon as that first bullet is fired, you have to start adapting to your circumstances. Well, earlier we saw that Paul and Barnabas encountered Gentiles with a polytheistic belief system. They believed in many gods. And so they had to be ready to address new issues that they had not encountered before amongst the Jewish people they were trying to reach. In Acts 15, we get to a passage that describes the Jerusalem Council. We see the church as a whole needing to wrestle through new theological issues that they had never considered before. Some of them were called Judaizers, and they thought that any Gentile must first become a Jew in practice. They would have to adhere to Jewish religious practices in order to be accepted as Christians. But wisely, the apostle said, no. Why would you put on them burdens that we ourselves were unable to bear? But it meant that they had to be willing to adapt and leave certain traditions behind. You see, this is the life of a missionary. Martin Kaler once said, missions is the mother of theology. Why is that? Because when you go out on mission and you encounter people who don't think the same as you, you have to go back to Scripture to find the answer. Because theology is just the study of God and God's Word. Missions is the mother of theology in that it causes us to go back to the book to find the answers. But theology is the mother of missions. I guess it's the question, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Theology is the mother of missions because in theology we find that we're commanded to go. Well, missions requires practical adaptability based on our theology. What is not too obvious as we go throughout the book of Acts, what well, not too obvious to the casual reader, is that during Acts chapter 13 and 14, there were strategic changes happening. There was a strategic changing of the guard that took place. In Acts 13, verse 13, we see something very strange happening. Go, go back to Acts 13. It says here, now when Paul and his party, or when Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga. Did you notice that you don't see Barnabas' name there? There were some strategic changes happening. The first strategic change that we see actually was a change of name. Earlier, you see it that that. Paul was going by his Jewish name of Saul. Acts 13, verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. But now in Acts 13, verse 13, it's Paul and his companions. He's called by his Gentile name for the first time. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name. Certainly there's a reason for this change. It doesn't just happen to coincide with uh, wanting to be changing his identity. No, it coincides with a shift in focusing from a Jewish audience to a Gentile audience. After this point, he's always referred to as Paul. But also, there's a change of leader. Prior to this point, Barnabas was always mentioned first. Have you ever noticed that? Most of us don't because... 
to be quite honest, we have wrongfully idolized a man named Paul. He was just a man like us. And if you asked him, that's exactly what he'd tell you. In fact, that's exactly what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Who is Paul or Apollos? Just servants of the Most High God. But we've idolized this man. <laughs> when they were together the entire time in Antioch, it was Barnabas who was the leader. Barnabas was the one sent from the church in Jerusalem to disciple the believers in Antioch. Barnabas is the one who went and got Saul to help him. Barnabas was the leader. Now as they're sent out, Barnabas is still the leader. But something changes, doesn't it? I mean, it's really interesting. In Acts 13, verse 1, Barnabas was the first of the elders listed in Antioch, and Saul was at the end of the list. We go down to verse 3. Barnabas is still the one listed first. Verse 7, Acts 13, verse 7. Barnabas still listed first. Barnabas and Saul. And then suddenly we got to 13.13. Paul and his party. Barnabas doesn't even make the list. <laughs> but Barnabas didn't care because it wasn't about him. And from there on, you just see it's always Paul. Go down to verse 43. It's Paul. Verse 46. Paul. Verse 50. Paul. Is this just some kind of coincidence? I don't think so. This was a strategic decision because who was the better person to lead the mission to the Gentiles? Paul, who was raised in Tarsus, a Gentile area. He knew what it was to be in a different culture. He's the one that God said would be the apostle to the Gentiles. Barnabas had no problem stepping back and saying, Hey, this is exactly what I've been working for. I was able to actually help Paul get to this point, and now Paul, take it where I could never take it myself. This is successful missions. Every missionary's job is to work themselves out of a job, and you see Barnabas doing that. And Paul now taking the lead. This is not a problem. But sometimes there are consequences when we do cross these boundaries and, and do what's necessary in order to get the gospel to spread. When we adapt, there's always a detractor. Well, they had one. His name was John Mark. One of the consequences of the strategic change was that they lost a team member. John Mark went back to his comfort zone, back to the status quo. And we might say, well, why? How could you not be excited about what God's doing? It's likely that the change of guard, the change of leadership, is what caused him to leave. The Bible never tells us why he left, but the timing would indicate that it was likely a contributing factor. You see, he came to be part of the team in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, whenever he came from Jerusalem back up to Antioch with him after Barnabas and Saul had taken some, some offering down there. It delivered uh, an offering to the church there. Now, Acts 13, verse 5, John was there, and it says he was primarily there to assist them. What we find out in the book of Colossians, Colossians 4.10, is that John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. They're blood relatives. <sighs> Could it be that John Mark was willing to go as long as his cousin was the leader? Could it, that also explain why when they went to Jerusalem to go and report back that Barnabas now wanted to bring John Mark with them again and go on a second missionary journey, but Paul refused? That's found in Acts 16, 36 to 38. It says that the dispute between Paul and Barnabas was so sharp that they couldn't even go on the trip together. Instead, Barnabas did take John with him, so he takes his cousin, and they go in one direction, faithfully carrying out the mission. And Barnabas, sorry, and, and Paul takes Silas with him. You know, even amongst godly people, sometimes we don't always have the best reactions to change. It took time for John Mark to process that. It also took the Apostle Paul some time to process that. But later we do see him say, bring John Mark with you because he is profitable to me for the ministry. He is a valid team player. God brought about healing. 
But initially, what was the challenge to the strategic change? There was a loss of a team member. Also, there was another <laughs> consequence. The first one was a negative. The second one was a positive consequence. The ministry that was already effective compounded ineffectiveness. Far more effective. One of the problems in any ministry is that we want to do things the way we've always done things, but get a different result. This puts the focus on us rather than putting the focus on God's agenda and the people God wants us to reach. How dare we put ourselves first? How dare we be so arrogant? But that's, that's our sinful nature at work, isn't it? We often focus on ourselves rather than God's agenda instead of strategically thinking, what is the next boundary that we need to cross? And what changes must we make in order to cross that boundary? These are the lessons we can learn from the church in Antioch. Today, we are seeing a portrait of missions done well. Precision execution of God's master plan of missions. Having a strategy based on biblical theology enables us to know what opportunities that we should say yes to and what opportunities to say no to. The church in Antioch modeled that for us. We will need this skill as well in our day and age because it's always easier to focus on ministries near us, either geographically near us or culturally near us, when God says, push the boundary and take the gospel further. God's plan is for us to reach all mankind, and this requires faith to swim into the deep end of missions, not just stay where our feet touch the floor on the bottom of the swimming pool. On the surface, many churches in America look like they are doing some serious swimming. But we know that down there, we're still touching the floor. I'm going to ask a tough question. We have a reputation at MVBC of being a very missions-hearted church. A very missions-active church. And maybe at some point in time we got pretty tired, and maybe we needed to put our feet down on the floor of the pool for a while. How are we doing today? Because there's some serious swimming to be done. Are we going to do it? Are we ready to do it? That's what this conference is all about. We need to go beyond. We need to be intentional. We need to ask where should the gospel be going from here? Who is going to the 1040 window? Some of my students are there. And by supporting us, well, you've now enabled me to pass the baton. You've passed a baton to me, and then I've passed the baton to my students, and they're passing it on to their students. But we can also do it right here by finding people right here in Merrimack to evangelize, to disciple, and equip for church planting. And so today, we've covered a lot of ground. I told you we were going to gallop, we were going to run, and we did as we looked at a portrait of missions done well. When you do God's work God's way, God uses you to accomplish what only He can produce. And so now what? What are you going to do? What are you going to take from this? Let me suggest a few things. Because we recognize being precedes doing. So we have to be the Christians we need to be before we can do the work we're supposed to do. And we recognize that right thinking precedes right being. Well, we've been giving the right thinking. What about these actions? These were actions that the church in Antioch took that we can imitate. Number one, pray. I have to echo Frank's earlier statements. Yesterday's prayer time was wonderful. May that be true of us all the time. Join Jim Weber in the missions or in the prayer time every first service every week if you're not already in another class or in the first service. Join him. Pray for what God's doing right here as well as around the world. Number two, witness as you go. What do I mean by that? As you go about life, right here and right now, be a witness. If you don't know how, sign up on the back table. We want to train people on how to do local outreach and evangelism right there in the Welcome Center. 
Sign up. We'd love to know who wants to get more training. Number three, go to another place and be a witness. Be a missionary, wherever God would send you, to the very ends of the earth. If God has laid it on your heart, I was, I was 14 years old when I knew God was sending me to Africa. I'm looking out to a lot of teenagers today. You might have some plans for your life. Do they match with God's plans for your life? I'll guarantee you this, God's plans are always better than your own. I never would have dreamed that I would have had a chance to do all that we've experienced in life, only by the grace of God. And he wants to use us. He wants to use you. But what about right here? Because not everyone is sent. But we're all supposed to make missions the preoccupation of our life. So, for you, if you're not called to, to be sent, you are supposed to be a sender. And you're supposed to be doing the work right here. So, let's think about this. Discipling new believers to maturity, both as an individual and as a church. Who do you know here that could benefit from lessons you've learned? All it is is helping them learn what you've learned. Discipleship isn't a program, it's life on life. Going through life together. Number five, establish healthy multiplying churches in every community around the globe. There's church plants, there's towns in our area that need another church. Could God be using us? Maybe some of us will be sent out from here just 40 minutes away to reach a community where there is no gospel preaching church. And lastly, give of your time, your talents, and your treasure. I found this quote this week, and I want to leave it with you, but I'm going to give a little bit of a caveat. There's a few quotes about giving. This first one is pretty straightforward from Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. <laughs> Why are we holding on to money? Why are we holding on to things? Why are we holding on to prestige and position? Let's surrender our lives. Let's surrender our honor. Let's surrender our sacred fortunes. If that's, what our, if that's what our founders of America were willing to do for a country, why can't we not do it for our King Jesus? David Livingston said, Do not think me mad. It is not to make money that I believe a Christian should live. The noblest thing a man can do is just humbly to receive the gift of the gospel and then go amongst others and give. Will you give of your treasure so that others might receive the gospel? I saw this on Facebook a while back, and I was thoroughly impressed because this is somebody who's been supporting our ministry for the last 10 years. She wrote, With the economy the way it is and all the uncertainty in the world today, the best place to invest your money is in a missionary. The return on your investment? out of this world. <laughs> Can't say that for the stock market, can you? This last one is the one that I need to give a little bit of a caveat for, because God does not ask us to be unwise with our money. So we'll, we'll revisit that at the end, but here's, here's a quote that I found this week. It was called, How Much Shall I Give? Think of this for your offerings, the, 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 the faith promise. Uh, cards that Pastor Dave has been distributing. Let's just ask these, these thoughts. Number one, if I refuse to give anything to missions this year, I practically cast a ballot in favor of the recall of every missionary. Come on back, because we're not going to support you. Mm. I don't want to cast my ballot that way. <laughs> Two, if I give less than heretofore, I favor reduction of the missionary forces proportioned to my reduced contribution. So if I'm decreasing my giving, we're going to be decreasing missions. C, number three, if I give the same as formerly, if I give the same amount that I gave last year, I favor holding the ground that's already won, but I oppose any forward movement. My song is hold the fort, forgetting that the Lord never intended his army to take refuge in a fort. All of his soldiers are commanded to go. And then lastly, if I increase my offering beyond former years, then I favor an advanced movement in the conquest of new territory for Christ. Now, some of you may have had some 
hard economic times this last year. Maybe you don't have the job you had before. We all know inflation has changed the value of our money. So the caveat is, is do you actually have financial ability? But we are told to give sacrificially. So don't feel manipulated. Don't feel uh, like it's a guilt trip. Just honestly ask yourself those questions. What does the amount of my giving show about whether I want the gospel to advance or not? Usually, usually our financial ability really isn't the problem because we always seem to have enough cash for the things we really care about. And so, let me leave you with this. We've seen a great example from the church in Antioch, but we need a generation now who knows what the church's mission is. We need a generation that is not playing church. We need a generation that is not trying to impress people with spectacular gimmicks. We need a generation that really gets the big picture of what missions is all about. Fine-tunes the fundamentals of the faith and missions. Serves faithfully. Gives glory to God for the fruit that only He can produce as He works through our humble submissive obedience to the Great Commission to be his witnesses, to make disciples, and to teach them to observe all of Christ's commandments, which includes passing to the next generation the baton that was passed to us. That's what we need. May we humbly rise to the call to be such a generation. Father in heaven, I pray that Today, as we have gotten a deep dive into the spread of the gospel through the early church, that we would be inspired, that we would be educated, that we would be motivated, that we would be moved in our heart to join in on the greatest enterprise that any human being could ever be part of, the spreading of your kingdom and the transforming of souls from death to life. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.